Well, we begin with God's spirituality, considering this attribute of God. As our catechism says, God is a spirit. And we begin with John 4.24 as our relevant scripture passage for our lesson, John 4, verse 24. You can see it on your handout as well, but you may want to turn there because we're going to look a little bit at the context. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here we have an explicit declaration of the attribute of spirituality that is attributed to God. God is spirit, or as other translations say, because of the lack of a definite article, God is a spirit. God is spirit. God is a spirit. Now, if you look at the broader context, you have Jesus here interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Foundational passage in telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he related to the people of his day. Here, he initiates a conversation with this Samaritan woman and he rises above the Jewish uh, mindset of his own day where they would have nothing to do with Samaritans. And he speaks to this woman, he shares the gospel with her using the illustration that's readily at hand, the water in the well. He promises to give her the water of life, living water that will not run dry, that will satisfy and quench the deep desires of her soul. And they go back and forth. Jesus confronts her for her sin of having had five husbands and the one that she's now with is not her husband. And she responds by asking Jesus a controversial theological question about where God's people should worship and, in a sense, who are the true people of God. Is it the Samaritans who worship on Mount Gerizim or is it the Jews who worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem? And so Jesus, although he's not led on a rabbit trail through this question, he does bring it back to her soul, and she eventually is converted. But he does answer her question, and he says, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And in answering this question and drawing this woman's attention to the true God and His plan of redemption through Christ, in which, of course, He doesn't get into all the details, but uh, it turns her attention to the Messiah. And so, mission accomplished. He's able to answer her question in a way that steers her back toward the relevant point that, that she needs to understand. She says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. So he's evangelizing this woman and yet he answers her question about where they ought to worship. And he does that by pointing out that God had established his true worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that the Jews are worshiping the true and living God. They know who they worship. The Samaritans are worshiping 
false gods, a syncretistic form of man-made religion that does not communicate a true relational knowledge with the true God of Israel. And so they're worshiping according to errors and human innovations, and they're ultimately worshiping a false god. And so they're not experiencing true salvation either. They're not the true people of God, and they're not engaged in the true worship of God. And yet he does it in a winsome way, making the point that this centralization of God's worship at Jerusalem is temporary, and that very soon things are already in the works, right? It's coming. In fact, in a sense, it's already now coming into view that God will establish His people throughout every nation under heaven and that the the criteria will not be geography, coming to the temple three times a year for the feasts, but it will be spiritual, uh, gathering with God's people where two or three are gathered in Christ's name. He's there and we worship in spirit and in truth. That's the worship that God is seeking. In some sense, that's what God has always been seeking, but in the new covenant, it comes in in a much greater measure, worship in spirit and in truth. Now, from this, we can glean a number of uh, points. First, God's true worshipers know God's true character. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. For those that like to critique the shorter catechism for saying, what is God? And they say, well, that's impersonal. How could you ever speak of God as a what? Well, Jesus speaks of God in terms of whatness, not just who-ness. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. So Jesus, who is God, refers to the divine nature according to what is God, that idea of whatness, nothing wrong with that. It's a consideration of God's nature. Nothing impersonal about it. But in any event, he says that God's true worshipers are going to know the object of their worship. They're going to know the true character or essence of who and what God is. Secondly, God's true worship corresponds with God's true character. So if you're a true worshiper engaging in true worship then your worship is going to correspond to who and what God is. Your worship is going to correspond to God's true character. As it says, verse 23, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Okay, If you're worshiping God according to His character as the sovereign, supreme creator who owns everything, who commands everything, to whom we must give an account, then your worship is going to want to be the kind of worship he's seeking, so it's going to be an act of service, not of personal entertainment or whatever. Um, Your worship is in submission to him. You're wanting to know, how can I worship God the way he's seeking me to worship? That's in accord with his character. Also, verse 24, God is spirit, And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So it's not just because God wants you to do it, but He he wants you to do it and the things He wants you to do are uniquely corresponding to His character. So it's really a, a twofold correspondence. God's true worship corresponds with His character. 
He commands it, and he commands it in such a way that, that it reflects who he is. Thirdly, God's true character is spiritual. God is spirit. As I said, there's no definite article, so you could say God is spirit, or you could say God is a spirit. We're not going to quibble a whole lot over that. Either way, you get the point. God's true character is spiritual, verse 24. Fourthly, God's true worship must therefore be spiritual. So as we're going to see, God is immaterial. He doesn't have a body. He's not physical. He has an essence, but he's not made of matter. He's immaterial. Doesn't have a body. He's not limited spatially. Okay, he's spiritual. He's immaterial. And God's true worship must therefore be spiritual, in spirit and in truth. In other words, when we think of... Um, let, me, let me address this phrase in two ways. It, the first way is to address this phrase spirit and truth according to the universal principle of God's worship that would have been true even in the Old Testament. Okay? There's a sense in which worship in spirit and in truth applies throughout the ages even in the Old Testament. And in that sense, what we mean by, and what Jesus means by spirit and truth, is first, that which is heartfelt, bless the Lord, my soul, my whole heart, ever bless His holy name. Psalm 103, verse 1, I think. We should worship from the heart, not as uh, Isaiah chapter 29 says, Jesus quotes it in Matthew 15, they draw near with their lips, but their heart is far from me. No, we should sing with grace in the heart, making melody to the Lord with our hearts, with the word of Christ dwelling in us richly, filled with the Spirit. We should be worshiping in a heartfelt manner with our minds, not a dead worshiper, but a living sacrifice, right? Not dead asleep like Eutychus who fell out and then was really a dead worshiper until Paul uh, brought him back, but uh, heartfelt worship, but it should be heartfelt biblical worship in accordance with God's truth, especially the truth of who God is. He's a spirit. We should worship in spirit, and that means that it's true worship because it corresponds to the nature of God and the will of God as he has revealed it. And so it needs to be heartfelt biblical worship. Uh, heartfelt, God-centered worship, God-defined worship, biblical worship. And that's true in the Old and New Testaments. You can see it in the second commandment at Mount Sinai. Don't worship God according to man-made idols, but rather love Him and keep His commandments with respect to worship. Don't add or subtract, Deuteronomy 12. But this phrase, as Jesus points out to this woman, comes into its own in a unique and full expression of what it means to worship in spirit and in truth in the New Testament with the coming of Christ. Because in the New Testament, the ordinances of worship are more geared to the heart and the soul. So while the Old Testament worshipers were required to worship in a heartfelt manner, in the New Testament, we have ordinances that have less of that immature, childlike phase of outward smells and bells and, 
outward ordinances that, uh, that make an impression upon our five senses. It's much more spiritually oriented in the New Testament. And also, so it's in spirit in a fresh way, and it's also in truth. That is, not just according to God's truth, the truth of God's Word and His commandments, okay? But more so than that, heavenly realities. We did a whole series on Christ who, who comes full of grace and truth, and we went through John's Gospel where he talks about um, all these different things. He's the true bread, the true vine, the true light that comes into the world. Here he's talking about true worship. And this is corresponding to the heavenly realities, the truth, the substance of our relationship to God. So Hebrews 12, when we come into New Testament worship, we don't have a visible temple with a visible earthly priest and so on and so forth. We come to the footstool and that throne, that temple, that priest, that king is in heaven and we enter into heavenly worship in the heavenly Mount Zion. And he's telling this woman, in the New Testament, you'll be able to enter the true Zion even if you're living in Samaria. You can actually be on Mount Gerizim and be at Mount Zion at the same time, spiritually, even as here we are in uh, Southfield, Michigan. And yet when we enter into worship, we're on holy Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem that is above So worship in spirit and in truth has application across the board through all the ages, but all the more New Testament worship ought to emphasize heartfelt biblical worship in keeping with the heavenly realities of what Christ has done. Now, let's consider, that's the context, God is spirit, let's consider now doctrinally the teaching of Scripture as a whole concerning the spirituality of God. And I'm going to say up front, there's not a ton of material on this uh, teaching in particular because this is a teaching that is so obviously held by God's people throughout the ages, even in the Old Testament. It's such an obvious truth that it's not as though they're having to go around pointing it out uh, all the time throughout the Old Testament. So there are not a ton of uh, proof texts for this, The other thing I'll say is that many of the proof texts that we might want to use to demonstrate that God is a spirit are going to come into view when we look at God's invisibility next time. So when we think of God as a spirit, and I'm going to, if you go down to doctrinal distinction number three, I'm just going to address that now. When we think of the spirituality of God, we can look at it in a narrow sense as the idea that God's essence is spiritual, that is immaterial. In the narrow sense, not the broader sense, but the narrow sense, the spirituality of God means that He is immaterial. That's our doctrinal thesis, He's immaterial. He doesn't have a body. But, in the broader sense, if you look at older Reformed theologians and you, you look up spirituality, you'll find under that umbrella, they deal not only with the fact that God is immaterial, but also with the fact that God is invisible and that God is indivisible. 
In other words, the simplicity of God that He cannot be divided up. He doesn't have parts. So He's immaterial, invisible, and indivisible. And these three truths go hand in hand. And for the older theologians, they're all part of the doctrine of God's spirituality. But we're going to look at these individually. Uh, And so that's why a lot of the proof texts that we might bring, I'm just saving for those future lectures, God willing. By the way, God is indivisible. And some of us, uh, if you have southern sympathies, you might struggle in reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, I've met people that have concerns about that because one nation under God, indivisible. And so a lot of our political candidates are, are faced with questions about whether they think it's constitutional to secede from the Union. Of course, Texas and California, they're always bandying these ideas about. Um, but if you're forced to say the Pledge of Allegiance and... Um, you do hold that secession is constitutional under certain circumstances, well, uh, you could just uh, say it in this sense. uh, One nation under God indivisible. Um, And uh, it would be true. So maybe maybe that's in conflict with our definition of uh, oaths and vows. But in any event, God indivisible. Uh, He's also invisible and he's also immaterial. And we're going to consider that last part. He's immaterial. Now, it says God is a spirit, and of course, as you're dealing with Mormons on the doorstep, you may face people who try to push back on that and define the spirituality of God in a way that allows for Him to have a physical body. But if you look at Luke 24, verse 39, when Jesus, having just been raised from the dead, appears to His disciples on resurrection day, He says this, Luke 24 and verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Again, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So, as systematic theologians, we can say God is a spirit, and a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have, the Lord says. So, God does not have a physical body. God is a spirit in a sense that makes him immaterial. He is not flesh. Isaiah 31 and verse 3. Isaiah 31 Verse 3, now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. In other words, they're made of material substance, flesh. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. So notice in terms of Hebrew parallelism, The Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So there's a clear contrast which indicates God is not material flesh. Rather, He is immaterial spirit. Also, Acts chapter 17, verse 24. 
where the Apostle Paul is dealing with the pagan conception of gods as these sort of superhuman individuals who dwell on the top of Mount Olympus from the Greek pagan standpoint. Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, Paul at the Areopagus, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, uh, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So God is not a superman, a large man, a material man dwelling in heaven in a physical temple made with hands and is worshipped, and the word worship there is therapuo. Uh, God is not helped. God doesn't need therapy. God doesn't need uh, servants in his uh, heavenly temple, you know, fanning him and feeding him grapes and so on and so forth. God doesn't need our help as though he needed anything. He's the one who gives us life and breath and all things. So you can see God's spirituality in Scripture is connected with his total independency from all matter. He's the creator. Everything depends on him, and he is independent of all of his creation. In addition, God's spirituality is the prerequisite for his infinite nature, and in particular, let's think of his omnipresence. God is everywhere. He is absolutely everywhere. Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? And we could debate back and forth, is this the Holy Spirit, or is this just a recognition of God's spiritual nature? But either way, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? And that's in the Hebrew parallelism, spirit and presence correspond. So you could argue this is God's spiritual nature as a whole, not distinguishing the Holy Spirit from the other two persons of the Trinity. But again, either way, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell or in the depths, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Elsewhere we're told that even the highest heavens cannot contain God and that everything lives and moves and has its being in God. Now that could not be possible if God were material because, um, you know, if, if you've ever played basketball and you're trying to get a rebound, you have to box somebody out right? Kind of nudge them, get your body in between them and the basketball so you can get the rebound. And why are you, why are you doing that? Because if you're in a spot, they can't be there at the same time, right? If, if you're in position to get the rebound, then they can't be in position because you're boxing them out. Matter has a way of boxing out other matter. You can't have two things in the same place at the same time. Right? If you were to take a chair and try to put it in the same place as this podium, you would knock the podium over because matter would come into conflict. That's even true of things that are invisible forms of matter, such as the wind. Uh, the wind 
can displace things, right? So if the wind comes in contact, though it's invisible, if we open the windows and the wind came in, it would blow my lecture notes off the podium because the wind came to that spot and it pushed the notes off of that spot. So matter is always in conflict with matter. Matter can't be in the same place as other matter at the same time and it can't be in multiple places at the same time. And so for God to be infinite and omnipresent means that he has to have a nature, a substance, an essence that transcends matter, that's able to be present in the same place as the podium or in the same place as the air or in the same place as, you know, when we speak of God dwelling in his people, he's inside of us, but that doesn't mean that, you know, he's, you know, boxing out your liver or your organs or something. God's there in a way that transcends matter. Whereas matter is always in competition for space, pushing one, one, one material object, pushing out another. So this is our doctrinal thesis. God's essence is spiritual, that is immaterial. Let's make some further distinctions here, doctrinally. First, we're speaking here of the divine essence, not the divine persons. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, in 1 Corinthians 15, is called a life-giving spirit. We know quite clearly the third person of the Trinity is frequently referred to as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So there are persons of the Trinity that are referred to with this term spirit, but that's not what we're discussing here. We're not discussing the personal properties of the persons of the Godhead, what distinguishes the first, second, and third person of the Trinity, what we're discussing is the common essence or nature shared and possessed by all three persons at one and the same time. And so it's the singular divine essence shared by all three persons equally, not that uniqueness, let's say, of the Holy Spirit. Why is he called the Spirit? Is it because he's more spiritual than the Father and the Son or that that he's less material than the Father and the Son, that the Father and the Son are some sense material, but the Spirit is all the more metaphysically immaterial. No, they're equally immaterial in the one divine essence. So it's not a metaphysical category. Uh, when we speak of the Holy Spirit being the Spirit, we need to understand that in both Hebrew and Greek, the word Spirit means breath or wind. That the Holy Spirit as Spirit is called that because of His eternal procession from the Father and the Son. That He is the eternal outbreathing of the Father and the Son. Just as we call the Son the Son, distinguishing Him as a person of the Trinity. The Father's not the Son. The Spirit's not the Son. What makes the Son the Son? His eternal generation from the Father. That's what makes Him the Son. That's true of Him. It's not true of the Father. It's not true of the Spirit. Well, what's unique about the person of the Holy Spirit? In His sharing of the divine essence, how does He share in it? He shares in it as the eternal outbreathing of the Father and the Son, and it refers to His eternal procession as a, a distinguishing personal property of his person. So we're focusing on the divine essence. All three have it in common equally. Second, we're dealing with the divine essence, not the divine image. 
which God placed upon mankind. And in some sense, though the language is not used, he placed upon angels. They have, they've been created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And mankind was made in the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. As we saw in our sermon, series, sermon this morning, Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24. So we're, we're dealing with God's essence, not God's image, because there is a sense in which both angels and men, including women and children, humans, are spiritual in a metaphysical sense. Genesis 2 verse 7 God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul. God the Father is called the Father of our spirits. I think that's Hebrews 12. And so we have an immaterial soul and that makes us spiritual in our immaterial soul. From a metaphysical standpoint, we have a spiritual aspect to our human essence. Now, we could say, well, then that's part of the image of God. In a sense, it reflects God. Okay, fair enough. There's an analogy there. God is a spirit, and we have a spirit. Not identical, but there's an analogy. There's a reflection. There's an image there. There's a likeness. Obviously, Jesus presupposes that when he says God is a spirit, and we should worship in spirit. So we have a spirit. God is a spirit. There's some connection there. According to the image of God, uh, Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits. That is, they're immaterial. They don't have bodies unless God sends them on a specific assignment. He gives them a body. But essentially, uh, they uh, are spirits. They're immaterial. And that's similar to God. And so they, they reflect that. Uh, however, as the Shorter Catechism question 4 reminds us, God is a spirit in a sense that far transcends his created spirits that he has made. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. And so we need to understand while there is something communicable or something common between God and his rational creatures, angels and men, there's something of the divine image there. Nevertheless, there's a huge discontinuity. God is infinitely supreme above his rational creatures. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. So there's an aspect of the divine essence here that is incommunicable. And so when we think of God, we shouldn't think, well, he's just like an angel, this spatially locatable, immaterial being that goes around doing things. No, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He's not a created spirit. He's not a finite, limited spirit. He's not a changeable spirit that goes from an angel to a demon or a saint to a sinner or, or a, you know, a righteous person to an unrighteous person, something like that. He's unchanging and unchangeable. So we're dealing with God's essence, uh, not the image. Uh, thirdly, I already made this distinction. We distinguish between the narrow sense of God being immaterial and the broader sense of God's spirituality, which then includes his invisibility and his indivisibility or his simplicity. So we'll look at some of those things later. Now, this raises some relevant questions and controversies. So we proceed to our polemical portion of the handout. 
Do bodily depictions of God in Scripture imply a mere material divine essence? So there are people who think God is just a big man in heaven who has a body. And to prove this, they try to cite passages of Scripture where God is depicted in bodily form. Do those bodily depictions of God in Scripture imply a material divine essence? We deny. Now, if you sing the Psalms, as we do constantly in our worship services, you're familiar with the fact that throughout the Psalms and throughout the Bible, there are references to God's face, to His eyes, to His ears, to His nostrils. Uh, At one point, you know, the people that say they're holier than thou, He says, you're smoking my nostrils, right? That's what God thinks of that kind of attitude. God's nostrils, His mouth, His arms, His hands, His feet. So what do we make of this? Is this merely metaphorical? Or are we to understand that when when the Bible attributes body parts to God, that it somehow comes in conflict with this statement that He is a spirit, or in some way we should modify that assertion of the Lord that God is a spirit. Well, if you look at Psalm 91, verse 4, you can see where this logically leads. If if you're tempted toward Mormonism and you say, well, God tells us all about His hands and His feet, His eyes and His ears, and therefore He must have all of these body parts. But... uh, Listen to the logical outcome of that type of thinking. Psalm 91, verse 4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. So, logical conclusion, with all due respect, but the the God of the Mormons would end up being a chicken if we went by that type of theology. So, understand, this is not inconsistent with God being a spirit and all the verses we looked at before but rather these are metaphors to help us understand God in human terms that that make sense to us. It's called an anthropomorphism. And it's, it's God condescending to our level to help us better understand His character. Secondly, do bodily appearances of God in Scripture imply a material divine essence? We deny So people that think God has a material essence or a body will sometimes say, well, sometimes He appeared in physical material form in various ways. He's in the burning bush. Uh, He wrestled as the angel of Jehovah. He wrestled with Jacob at Peniel. Clearly, he had a body. He was the fourth man in the fiery furnace with with Daniel's three friends. The the Holy Spirit descended in bodily shape as a dove at the baptism of Christ. So people will say, listen, there are these bodily appearances of God in Scripture. We could cite many more of them. Doesn't this imply a material divine essence? And of course, no, it does not. And we're going to have to borrow a little bit. As I said, it's tough to avoid borrowing proof texts from our subsequent lectures. But uh, 1 Timothy 1.17 unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. So could Jacob see the angel with whom he wrestled at Peniel? Yes. Could Nebuchadnezzar see the fourth man in the flames? Yes. But we're told that God's essence 
is invisible. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. So we have to conclude from this that while God is showing an appearance, He's revealing Himself by way of forms and shapes and visions according to His prerogative to do that. Nevertheless, these visible physical forms and shapes and manifestations of His presence, uh, even the, the tongue of fire on the heads of the, the believers in the upper room in Acts 2, these things are not God's essence, but they're simply revelations of His presence and of His truth. And so it's not indicating that He has a material essence, but rather simply that He reveals Himself in visible material ways to visible material creatures. And that makes sense. Thirdly, does Christ's status as the image of God imply a material divine essence? We deny it is true that Christ is called the image and brightness of the Father's glory, that He's called the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, for instance, Hebrews 1.3, image and brightness, image, uh, the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of His person, Hebrews 1.3, John 14.9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, And so somebody could say, well, Jesus in his incarnation is in physical form as a human being, is in human nature, which he's taken upon himself, uniting it to his divine nature. Therefore, if you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. The Father must have a physical human body. Well, I think we're missing the point there. I think in terms of Christ as the image of the Father's person and the brightness of His glory, Hebrews 1 verse 3, that's something that Jesus had eternally. That's simply His position as the second person of the Trinity. That's who He is. Uh, That's not something that came into being when He took on a physical body at the incarnation. That's an eternal reality within the Godhead that has nothing to do with physical shape or form. And when you see Him coming in physical shape and human nature in the incarnation, what is it that He's revealing about the Father? Is it the Father's physical bodily traits? Or is it, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Clearly, it's the latter. It's not His bodily form that we see in the incarnate Savior, but it's the light of the knowledge of God's immaterial glory. And so you've seen Christ, you've seen His mercy his compassion, his justice, his holiness, his power, then you've seen the character and the essence of the Father in that revelatory sense. Also, the term image in the Bible is related to sonship. Adam begat a son in his own image after the fall. Uh, God made Adam in his own image, Adam and Eve, and it says in Luke 3 that Adam was the son of God. So, Christ as the image of God implies, as I mentioned, His eternal generation as the Son of God, and it also implies that He is the incarnate Son of God who reveals the character of God. Fourthly, is the Holy Spirit any more or less spiritual than the Father or the Son we deny? We've already addressed this, but we need to understand 
that when it says God is a spirit, it's all three persons equally possessing and sharing that one divine nature, not the unique personal property of procession or spiration or outbreathing that is unique to the Holy Spirit. Again, we dealt with that, so we're going to move on. Fifthly, does man's creation in God's image imply a material divine essence we deny? Does man's creation in God's image imply a material divine essence we deny? There are people, I think in, in fairly decent evangelical churches, who grow up learning about the image of God, and in the back of their minds, they think that God has a human body because we're made in His image. And they think God formed and shaped Adam in His image, and they think of God as the, the big man upstairs. Now, that's more crass than I think our, most of our evangelical brethren would would admit to, but there's something, I've run across people over the years where uh, serious Christians who, when they really grappled with the spirituality of God, realized that they had imbibed some wrong influences and ideas about this point. Uh, When it says man is made in God's image, it means spiritually his immaterial soul is made in God's image. It doesn't mean that, as we'll see in a moment, it's not downgrading the importance of the body, but what reflects God about the human being is the soul, and then the soul uses the body to engage in outward actions that reflect God's glory. So the body is involved in in man's image bearing, it's involved in man's dominion. I'm not saying the body is not involved because it's part of the man, and the the whole man reflects God's image. But in particular, it's the soul that bears the specific criteria for the image of God, Colossians 3.10. We've been citing it all day. We might as well read it. Paul says, you have put on the new man, the new humanity, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Ergo, we can say, if sanctification is renewing us in the image of the Creator, in knowledge, we must have been originally created in the image of God according to knowledge. So the image of God is knowledge. And that knowledge, contrary to AI theorists, is in the mind, not in the brain, at least as it's used here. Of course, the brain then becomes the fit instrument of the mind. Knowledge. We were created in knowledge. Then also Ephesians 4, verse 24. And that you put on the new man, again, that new humanity, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So if our recreation is in righteousness and holiness, and it's renewing the image of God, therefore, We were originally created not just in knowledge, but in righteousness and in holiness. So, man's creation in God's image is grounded in his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, which are aspects of his immaterial soul. And this is the sense in which 1 Peter 1.3 says that we as sanctified believers become partakers of the divine nature. Not that our bodies become divine or that somehow 
we can become gods because God is a big man who became a god like the Mormons teach, and now we can become a god and partake of the divine nature in that sense. But rather, our souls are renewed in those moral attributes of God. Think of the shorter catechism. God is a spirit, um, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, as a believer, you're being sanctified in those attributes of God to reflect His wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are all communicable attributes of God. Those are attributes that are imaged forth by God's believing creatures. And we're partakers of that aspect of the divine nature again, which is in our soul, which then, of course, then like a hand in a glove uses the the, the body to reflect God's glory and God's image through the whole man. But the image is immaterial, and therefore, if the image is immaterial, how much more can we be sure that God Himself is immaterial in His own essence? Sixthly, is Mormonism's belief in a material divine essence a damnable heresy? We, re- we affirm. We affirm that Mormonism's belief in a material divine essence is a damnable heresy. God is a spirit. A spirit does not have flesh and bone, as Jesus said. And so, Mormonism teaches that there's an infinite regression of the gods and that the God of our world was a man who worked his way up the ladder and became a god, and then now he gives us the same opportunity. And that is soul-damning heresy, that is idolatry, that is a false god. We know who we worship, and it's not that God. Uh, Those who worship the true God worship Him in spirit and in truth because they confirm that they, or they affirm that He is spirit according to the Bible's truth. Also, by the way, if, if you need some ammo against the Mormons, really for the Mormons, so that they be converted and have eternal life and reflect God's image all the more as a Christian, Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. So, before him or after him, there's no other God. And that, I think, takes care of Mormonism. Seventhly, If man's soul, rather than his body, bears the divine image, does this make the body unimportant to the Christian life? If man's soul, rather than his body, bears the divine image, does this make the body unimportant to the Christian life? We deny. We deny. The body is secondary to the soul. The body is subservient to the soul. But the body, for that very reason along with the soul, is extremely important. Our bodies are crucial. 
Our bodies are the servant of our soul. Our bodies are the instrument of the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of the mind, will, and emotions that God has put within us. And therefore, Paul says it's at the heart of the Christian life to have a high view of your body and to have a high view of it as the instrument of your soul in living the Christian life. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or worship. So when you worship God in spirit and in truth, it doesn't mean your body's not involved. It doesn't mean that your vocal cords aren't glorifying God through singing or that your ears aren't functioning and hearing the word or you know you think of all the different actions you come to church you sit physically you're a totality of a person as a human being body and soul and Paul actually says it he doesn't even mention the soul here he focuses on the body now it's a living sacrifice so the soul is that animating principle that gives life to the body so it's body and soul but that body ought to be filled with spiritual life and actively engaged in service and worship of the living God. In fact, if you go earlier in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, listen to how your bodily members are described. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members, that's body parts, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, your body parts, as instruments of righteousness to God. So he's saying your body parts are instruments of righteousness. They're instruments. God has... Uh, regenerated you as a believer and he's reshaping you and restoring you in the image of God and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in your soul. And the instrument of obedience, worship, righteousness, glorifying God is your body. And so you need to use it for that purpose. I mean, people that say, well, if the body isn't the most important thing, then it's totally irrelevant. And they pursue an unbiblical spirituality and Gnostic duality between body and soul and they disregard their body. The fact of the matter is uh, if you disregard the instrument for righteousness, how well do you, are you going to be doing at righteousness? Right? How are you going to be sowing seeds of righteousness and seeing the peaceable fruit of righteousness if as a spiritual farmer your agricultural machinery and your instruments are in disrepair and you're not keeping them in good shape, and you're not making sure everything's functioning properly, a well-oiled machine, if you're not taking care of your body, then you're not going to be fruitful, and you're not going to be successful in performing the righteous acts of service that God's called you to perform. So your body is important. Spirituality emphasizes the body because it's the means to producing spiritual fruit through good works. If you're going to do good works, it's not going to be through some Vulcan mind meld. You have to do it physically, and your hands, your feet, your physical bodily health need to be very important. Uh, if, If you want to live a long life of service, 
in the church. You can't always control that, but make sure you're not doing anything that's going to hinder that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and following says that your body is united to Christ, that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that your body was bought with a price by Jesus Christ. He purchased and redeemed your body. It'll be raised up at the last day, okay? So this is very, very important that you take good care of your body. If you didn't get enough sleep last night, you're going to struggle in the worship service. Same with me preaching, right? If we don't take care of our bodies with food and drink and sleep and all the various aspects of physical health, spiritual health's number one, but physical health is right there on the list right after that. And if we don't take care of it, our spiritual health will suffer because we are complete uh, human beings, body and soul, in, in one totality. Psychosomatic image-bearing creatures our bodies affect our souls and vice versa. So take good care of your body. Uh, Elijah, it's interesting, 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8, read that. Elijah spiritually was in fuego. He was on fire for the Lord, literally. Fire from heaven devoured the altar. Victory over the prophets and priests of Baal. He runs back to Ahab's palace. The rain comes to end the drought. And then he becomes very discouraged when Jezebel starts seeking to kill him and he doesn't see the immediate impact that he had desired. He's depressed. He's under the broom tree and he's sitting there paralyzed by his anxieties and fears and concerns and frustrations. And the Lord comes to him as a counselor in his depression, in his discouragement. And what does the Lord prescribe for him? Does the Lord say, memorize this verse, do your homework, and come back and, and you know, we're, we're, well, not to say that's wrong, we need that in counseling, but in this case, the wonderful counselor comes to him and says, here's some food, here's some drink, he gives him time to take a nap, to replenish and rejuvenate his physical body. How many of us would counsel people the same way the Lord counseled Elijah? focusing on some of his bodily needs in order to re refresh him and encourage him to get back uh, to the work of the Lord. Uh, very interesting the way the Lord's angel counsels Elijah. Uh, does Scripture, lastly, does Scripture forbid material images of our immaterial God? And the answer is we affirm yes. The second commandment forbids uh, making, bowing to, or in any way worshiping images, uh, graven images. Romans 1, through 25 says that it is to exchange the glory of God for the glory of the creature. Uh, images of man and birds and animals. It is the lie where we worship created things, material things, rather than God himself who is blessed forever. Now, we're going to spend more time on that. We'll get to our practical application next time. I was hoping maybe we could get through a whole lecture in, in one lesson, but we at least got through our polemical section, and so we're going to spend the entire lesson next time. I think this will be refreshing because it's a very important application for us, and we'll be preparing to come to the Lord's table in the evening. We're going to look at uh, what it means 
to apply the spirituality of God to our worship and to our Christian life. What does it mean to engage in spiritual worship? How do we apply that? And what does it mean to live a spiritual life of sanctification? How do we apply that? All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are spirit, and we look to you as the Father of our spirits. We thank you for the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that we have through Christ, the second Adam. We give thanks that we are his spiritual seed and that uh, you have chosen us before the foundation of the world in him that we would be holy and blameless before you in a relationship of love. We pray that that love would saturate us, that it would compel us and constrain us unto repentance, to put to death the deeds of the body, to gain a true understanding of true spirituality, setting our hearts and minds upward upon things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We pray in his name. Amen.